0: Good morning, church family. All right, if you're a guest with us, I want to greet you again. My name's Chase Sears, and I'm the lead pastor here, and we're thrilled to have you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, uh, Mike Callahan, one of our ushers, is right there in the back. He'll be happy to to give you one of those, and you can take that as a gift from us. Not just because it's Christmas, but it is Christmas time as well. And you can open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. And we're going to be continuing our our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to close out the year over the next two Sundays, finishing out uh, Matthew chapter 10. And we're going to find ourselves here this morning and next week looking at verses 24 through 42. But I'm going to read all that passage uh, for us as we begin this morning. Matthew chapter 10. Beginning in verse twenty-four, and hear the words of our Lord Jesus. He says, "A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household?" So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them. "'will fall to the ground apart from your Father, "'but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. "'Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. "'So everyone who acknowledges me before men, "'I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. "'But whoever denies me before men, "'I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. "'Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. "'I have not come to bring peace, but a sword.'" Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of the least of these, even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, He will by no means lose his reward. Over the last several weeks, we've been talking about what it looks like to follow Jesus, and even particularly the cost of following Jesus. And and Jesus tells us that he is sending us as sheep among wolves. And and he even then tells us, uh, despite all these things, that it's the one who endures to the end who will be saved. And so what we've been seeing is that following Jesus is difficult. And I think even we didn't have to read those passages to know that following Jesus isn't always easy. In fact, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you you know that it's difficult to stay faithful to our Lord. And why is that? Well, I think there's many reasons. On the one hand, we have distractions all around us, things that keep us busy, and lead us to believe there are more pressing matters to tend to than the tending of our own souls. Uh, we think of our, our work demands, right? They, they have a toll that they take on us. If you have kids, our, our kids take a toll, not to mention their activities take a toll. Um, you also think about your activities, your your things that you like to do for leisure, the things that you you deem as important to your entertainment, and and we can we can go and and we can list them all. Probably right now at this season of Christmas, we feel like we're busy. Uh, we have people visiting us, and once they leave, we're going to go visit them. Other people, uh, we might have work parties, we might have community group parties. You name it; it is party central around here, and we're constantly going, and you may find that your time with the Lord has waned. That's one perspective and one reason why I think we we struggle. We're we're distracted by many things, not necessarily bad. We're just distracted. And on the other hand, we also battle our own wayward hearts, don't we? Some of us are weary this morning. Some of us are, are greatly discouraged Our own lusts consume us. Our our lack of faith, our unbelief, we're, we're discouraged. All these things begin to take their toll. And again, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that following Jesus is not a cakewalk. It's not a cakewalk. That's why the Scripture actually likens the Christian life to a race. Have you ever noticed that? The Scripture likens the Christian life to a race, a race that must be run a race that you must complete. You must cross the finish line. I love what the, uh, the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12. We've got it up on the screen. <laughs> the writer of Hebrews says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. We just talked about that. Don't we feel like our busyness sometimes our weight's on us? And then you got our own sin. He, he says, let those things. Let let us lay them aside and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, there's that word again, endured the cross. Scripture is filled with these analogies and not just that of a race, Paul speaks of the Christian life as a fight. You know this one in, in 1 Timothy 6.12. Fight the what? The good fight of the faith. Have you ever thought about that? And you know when you, you feel particularly those battles within you, you're fighting. Peter picks up this language. He calls it war. 1 Peter 2.11. Our sin wages war against your soul. It's against our own soul. If you were to look, and I encourage you to do this maybe uh, today, later, when you you get some time to yourself, read Revelation 2 and 3. These are the letters that Jesus writes to the churches. And one of the things that he continually ends all his admonitions with is, to the one who conquers will receive, and then he'll, he'll give some description of eternal life. That word conquer has the idea of war. You, you conquer a foe. Scripture likens the, the Christian life to hard-working farming in 2 Timothy 2.6. Or, or Romans 12.1, that we are to offer ourselves as sacrifices, or living sacrifices as we often think of it, or being good managers of, of resources. 1 Corinthians 4.11, we are to be considered stewards of the mysteries of God. And all these analogies, and I'm sure we could unpack more of them, all of them reiterate the necessity of patient endurance. Even that of a farmer, you think of that. You, you do the work, it's almost monotonous, and yet you have to wait a season before you'll see any work. We feel that way in our own Christian lives, don't we? It's a constant plodding, a constant running. It's not a sprint, though, it's a marathon. And so what we see here is that the Christian life is not passive. Maybe you're weary this morning. Maybe you're discouraged. And what I want to encourage you with is that's normal. The Christian who says, I'm following Jesus and it all is working out, I'm not sure you're following Jesus if it always works out. Because following Jesus is hard. I want you to hear what Paul says at the end of his life. He says this to Timothy, He says, "'For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. In other words, I'm about to die.'" That's what he's saying. Now listen to what he says, or read it up on the screen. "'I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. "'Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness.'" which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is my prayer for us, church, that we would run and that we would be able to say that at the end of our lives. That we'd be able to say after our journey, our plotting of running that race, that journey of following Christ, that we have poured out our lives as living sacrifices. That we have fought the fight. That we have run the race. That we have kept the faith like a good deposit given to us to to steward and, and to manage. And that at the end of that race we will receive the crown of salvation at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you might be wondering, why does the Scripture call us to endure? Why does it call us to persevere? Well, the simple fact is, is that Christ knows that you and I will be tempted to quit running. We're tempted in that way. Perhaps some of you are tempted that way. Today, you're thinking to yourself, I just want to give up. I'm tired of running. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of sacrificing. Do you ever feel like that? Well, there's a reason because following Jesus is, is not always easy. And it's it's a battle. And so Jesus understands that these pressures are going to be upon us, and he's, and he's writing to us, and we see it through all the letters. There's always this encouragement keep running. Keep looking to Jesus, looking to the the founder and and perfecter of your faith. And the imagery is is like that sense in which we're running and I can see him at the finish line. I can see him. And so I keep running, I keep chasing, setting my hope on him. And so there are pressures, brothers and sisters. I know we all feel it. There's pressures to quit there's pressures to quit following jesus either by totally denying him maybe you feel that today but more likely i think for many of us it's just it's it's just it's to quit through our actions quit 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 following we wouldn't outright deny him but but we're we're not outright obeying because it's hard it's weary so jesus gives us encouragement today an incentive to endure, to run the race. That's where we we see in chapter 10, verse 22, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so the question for us this morning is how do we do that? Actually, it's the question for the next two mornings. How do we endure? How do we run the race well and keep ourselves from, from shipwrecking our faith? How do we keep ourselves from shipwrecking our faith and deserting Christ? Well, the Scripture this morning gives us motivation and direction. It serves, brothers and sisters, as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Why? Because the path is dark. And we need that light. And that light shines and gives us motivation. It gives us direction. And the key for us that we need to keep in mind here is to trust Jesus and heed his word. That's what it looks like by the writer of Hebrews says, by looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Well, how do you look to Jesus? You listen. The scripture always says you see by hearing. And so the author and perfecter of our faith is there, and he is calling to us, and he is is telling us the path. But we have to keep listening. We have to keep hearing. This is what enduring faith looks like. And, this, and in this case, Jesus calls us to rightly calibrate four areas of our lives. Our expectations, our fears, our priorities, and our rewards. We need to see all these spheres of life around him. And we're going to look at the first two this Sunday and the next two next Sunday. So there's an incentive to get back from Christmas travels, okay? All right. Well, let's look first at enduring and calibrating our expectations. We we need to have rightly placed expectations. Having rightly placed expectations is crucial to every facet of your life, right? Every area of your life. So, for instance, if if you start a new job and you have certain expectations, and your boss expects more than you expect, well, guess what? You're going to quit, right? Chances are. Hey, I'm not putting up with this. Or I thought I was going to get paid a certain amount. I got into this job, and it doesn't pay as much as I thought. And so what do you do? You, you, you back out. You say, I'm, I'm not doing this work. It's because your expectations exceeded reality, maybe. Same thing could be said of, of, of if you enter a marriage. You think everything's going to be like the way it was when you dated. Well, it gets better. No, it does. It, it gets better. But there are, it's a journey, it's a trial. That's a great blessing. Same thing with children. Many of us think raising a family is going to be like the TV show we watched. Yeah, there's trouble, but by the end of the hour, it'll be solved. And we laugh, but many of us utterly fall into despair when things don't go right because we've been cultivated by the culture telling us this is what reality is when it's not. That's not reality. It's one of those things that distracts us, and therefore we struggle in faith. Well, the same is true in following Christ. If you think following Christ means your life will always be easy, and you think following Christ, it will always be carefree, then you're going to be greatly disappointed. You're going to be greatly disappointed. Now, now, don't get me wrong here. Now, this is like, man, what a downer of a sermon on Christmas, The Christian life is full of joy. The Christian life is full of hope. It is full of peace and love. And we taste these things, particularly in the body, right? It's one of the reasons we we gather together. And the Lord knows that we need that. We need to encourage one another with these things. Keep encouraging each other to, to look forward to His appearing. And those things produce the hope, produce the joy. Following Christ... Uh, also entails a certain measure of blessing, particularly as we follow his design and will for our lives. But that doesn't mean, brothers and sisters, that, that you will live a life free from suffering and free from trouble. doesn't mean that. Now you might say, well, why can't it mean that? Well, here's the simple truth that Jesus is telling us this morning, because it didn't mean that for him. Who are you following? You're following Jesus, right? In following Jesus, your life should then look like his if you're following him. And so this is the point that Jesus makes in verses 24 and 25. A disciple is not greater or superior to his teacher nor a slave to his master. What striking analogies he just used. Did you catch that? Jesus is the teacher and he is the master. So what does that mean about you and me? We're the student, we're the disciple, we're the slave. And he couples particularly that student-teacher relationship because you sit under a teacher so that you may learn their ways. And particularly in the Jewish mindset, a rabbi, a teacher, you want to have your life shaped by that person's life. I want my life to look like your life. And what Jesus says is, do you think you're going to surpass me? Do you think somehow that you're going to escape the things that I did not escape? But yet many of us live hopelessly as if Jesus isn't what I thought it was going to be. I still have trouble in my life. And Jesus says, well, are you following me? Yes. Well, Then it shouldn't surprise you. That's been his point all along. Now notice in verse 25. Look at what he says. This is striking to me. You're not going to rise. You're not going to be an exception to your master and your teacher. It will be enough. Enough for what? For the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. What's enough? He, He tells us what the goal is, to be like Jesus. It will be enough for you to be like me. Because that's who you're following, right? Is it enough for you to be like Jesus, walking in his footsteps? Because if we consider Jesus' life, particularly his death and resurrection, what we learn in the Christian life and what we learn from the Scripture is that actually his life becomes the pattern for his followers. That's why when we are baptized, what do we say? Buried with Christ, raised to newness of life. And in a real sense, that repeats in our lives daily as you die to yourself. You are constantly dying to self and you are appropriating the words of Christ with life, new life into you that grant you forgiveness, that cleanse you of your sins. Every trial you and I face as a follower of Christ is actually working his death and resurrection in us. That's why we're to count our trials as all joy because what we know is that Christ's life is being worked in us. So when Jesus says, if they call the master of the house Beelzebub, well, what does that mean? Well, in 934, we see that it's the prince of demons. If they call Jesus the prince of demons, this is what Isaiah says, they call what is good evil. If they call him the prince of all these things, well, how much more is the world going to malign his followers? That's what he's saying. And so if you're malign because you follow Christ, what, what do we learn here at the end of verse 25? That we're of his household. That's a comforting word. Your sufferings, the, the opposition of the world so much that you are because you follow Christ, it's actually a confirmation that you're like him. That's what he's getting at. And that should be enough for us. It should be sufficient for us. We shouldn't want to be greater than him. We just, if I could just be like him, that would be enough. And and all of us would say, I'm not there. I'm not there. This is why the apostles in the early church actually boasted in their sufferings. Have you ever noticed that? The early church in particular, they, they thought it was an honor if they were thrown to the gladiator arena. And given to the dogs. Why? Because they said, it is enough. I have become like my Savior. I want you to hear what Paul says. This This is exactly what Paul says to the church in Philippi. He, he wanted to identify with Christ's sufferings. He wanted to bear his reproach. He wanted to be counted worthy of Christ. Now Now look at what he says in Philippians chapter 3. If you want to turn there, you can, but I've got it up on the screen. Paul wants to know Christ. That's his goal. And so he says this. This is a familiar text to all of us. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So in other words... It is enough for Paul to be like Jesus. I want to know him. And you're going to see it's not just intellectual. It is know him in every facet of who he is. And I will gladly give up everything else in order to obtain that. He goes on. For his sake, that's the key here. I have suffered the loss of all things. So this isn't just suffering for suffering's sake. It's suffering for Christ's sake. And account them as rubbish, he goes on. In order that what? I may gain who? Christ, right? And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now he picks it back up. That I may know him. What does he want to know? And the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you want to be raised from the dead? Do you want to be raised from the dead? Yes. Yes. The only way you can do that is if you die. And that's the following Christ. That's the internal life that is set up for us, but first you must die. And that's exactly what, when we come back to our text, what Jesus says, is it not? Look in verses 38 through 39. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life, that means the one who's seeking to preserve their life at all costs, that they are living for this world, guess what, they will lose it in the end. But whoever loses his life for my sake, that's a key phrase, will find it. We'll find it. He's saying this. You're following me? Calibrate your expectations because what I want you to know is that I'm going to the cross. That's why he says, whoever wishes to follow me must what? Take up his cross. Because you're following Jesus. And that's what it looks like. Now, he's already gone through. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He stands at the finish line, but now we are still following in line. We're following him. But here's the joy that's set before us it's resurrection. It said, I will be like him, and I see him exalted in power and glory. And he'll make us sons and daughters of the kingdom. Let me ask you, is that your expectation of the Christian life? That you're following Jesus, and that if you're following Jesus, you wanna be like him? And We gotta encourage each other to that end. We wanna be like him in every facet. Every facet I wanna be like him. You wanna be like him, I know that. But it's hard, and at times we wanna quit. But that's what he's working in us, denying ourselves, and putting on Christ. So this is the expectation that you that will actually enable you and I to persevere in the faith. But Jesus also says, if we're going to endure, we must also have rightly placed fears. Rightly placed fears. And so if following Jesus will result in trouble, particularly, he's talking about here, trouble in the world, then one of the forces that's going to be working against you and me to keep us from following is the fear of man. The fear of men and women paralyzes many of us. Most of us, all of us are affected in some regard, but some more than others. We care so much what people think. And it paralyzes us. Our greatest fear. What do we fear? We fear dishonor, don't we? That I'd be dishonored. That I would I, I'd be shamed. That I would be ashamed in front of people. But it goes on. Maybe, maybe we fear loss of friends and family because of that. The loss of our livelihood if we follow Jesus. If we do what Jesus says, I may lose things. And then there's even the fear of losing our very lives. And what does Jesus say in verse 26? He says, Have no fear of them. Have no fear of them. How do you do that? How do we combat the fear of man? We see three ways in this text, and this is where we're going to focus the rest of our time. Jesus first reminds us that the truth will prevail. The truth will prevail. Look at what he says at the end of verse 26. Why should we not fear them, whoever them is for you? Them who are going to take what you fear you cannot live without, okay? Do not fear them. Why? "...for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known." You might be saying, well, that's not really helpful, Jesus. I have no idea what you mean by that, right? What does that mean, Jesus? Well, it means this. It means that in the coming kingdom, all things are going to be made known. All things that are hidden are going to be brought to light, all things that are, uh, that are covered up are going to be made known. Well, what sort of things are you talking about, Jesus? Well, well, for instance, the kingdom. You and I can't see it, can we? At least not with our natural eye. Wouldn't this be a whole lot easier if Jesus was physically present, sitting on the throne? But he's not physically present. But yet we know his spirit is here, it dwells in us, and that he does reign. We say it. Jesus is on the throne. We usually say it to comfort ourselves with those realities. But wouldn't it be nicer if we could say, there he is, see? But we can't see him. There's a sense in which the kingdom is hidden to the natural eye. Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 is going to unpack some of this with the parables of the kingdom. And he likens the kingdom to like a seed that's underground. And though you may not be able to see that seed, you know that just like that seed you planted, it is growing underneath and you will eventually see it because that tree will sprout. He also likens it to a little leaven and a a loaf of of bread and flour. And when you put it in the oven, you don't see that leaven, but it is underneath the surface and it is expanding. But one day you're going to open up that oven and you're going to see that bread and you will see the effects of the leaven. It is hidden, but if you have eyes to see, you can see the kingdom expanding. You can see those seeds growing every time the waters of the baptistry are stirred. Every time you you gather on Sunday morning, you're seeing the effects of, of the kingdom. But there's a real sense to the world, it is hidden. It is hidden. What else is hidden? Well, who we are is hidden, right? Who do we say that we are? We're the children of God. He's our Father. That's quite a claim. Because what we're saying is to the world, we're telling you what our Father says, and you should listen because He is your Father. You just don't know Him. That doesn't make people very happy. In fact, that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Why did they get upset with Jesus? Because Him being a man makes God His Father. He's claiming an intimate relationship that we can't see. And that's what we're doing, right? It's hidden. In another sense, our our good deeds, they're hidden, aren't they? Yes, we can see them, but but often the world does not see. We don't always see what's going on in everybody's hearts. We certainly can't see that, but even the expressions of them. Same is true with our evil deeds. But what Jesus is saying is that that the truth will prevail. The truth will come out. Now, now we often hear this, particularly in our culture today. You guys don't want to be on the wrong side of history. You've heard that before? And what do they mean by that? You don't want to be found foolish as the coming generations look back and determine and see that what you stood for was clearly wrong, clearly evil. Well, Jesus is basically saying the same thing. He's just saying you have too short of a version of history. I'm talking about the age to come. When all things are made known and the light shines, you want to be found right in those terms. You want to be found right there. And so for this reason, Jesus goes on. Well, what does that look like then to, to trust that the truth will prevail? Well, he tells us in verse 27 He says, what I say to you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the rooftops, right? That's what he does. In a real sense, what we're experiencing right now is private, isn't it? We can expand this even to an individual level. Some of you are listening, some of you are not. And those of you who are listening to the word, it's as if God is speaking to you right now through his word, pressing it to you. And I have no idea what God is doing in every individual person, right? Same thing happens when you're reading your Bible on your own and you you commune with your heavenly father. That all is happening in private, in secret, seemingly in the dark. But yet here's what Jesus tells us. What I tell you in the dark, what I whisper in your ear. Go bring it in the light. Go shout it on the rooftops. Why? Because it's true. What you are hearing Sunday after Sunday as we expound the scriptures, and that's one of the reasons why I take, it's why we take a long time, because I want you to hear God's word, not mine. So that you may hear his voice, not mine, nor anybody else's, and that you can go declare it and make it known. You can have confidence, brothers and sisters, that God's word will prevail, even if the whole world's against you. I love what John says in 1 John 4. 4. He says, little children, you are from God. What a claim. Little children, you, you are from God and have overcome the world for he who is in you is greater than him who is in the world why does he have to tell us that because it's not easy to see we see by hearing we see by hearing jesus again tells us not to fear them this is the second second truth goes on, he says, and do not fear, three times in this text. He says, do not fear them, verse 26, now verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body. Yeah, right, Jesus. (laughs) And do not fear them who kill the body. Well, why? This is the second reason, because even their ability to kill is limited. Their ability to kill us is limited. Yes, they can kill the body. And there's a real sense. I think Jesus knows we fear it. It's a sense of which, who do you fear more? Do you fear him who doesn't have the truth on their side? Do you fear him who can only kill the body? That's what he's getting at. And We know that's a, a real reality. The testimony of all the saints of old. No coincidence that that passage in Hebrews 12, run the race set before you, comes on the heels of Hebrews 11, which if you're familiar with that, is the hallmark of the faithful. And many of them died. And they did not see the promises. Why? But they endured. Well, that, that list just keeps going on. Keeps going on. And the world will oppose us, and even for some of us, they will kill But Jesus astonishingly says, that's all they can do. Does <laughs> that good news to you? All they can do is kill you. All that could happen to you is you die. I think we could use a little bit of this perspective. We're scared of everything. Germs, things that don't even exist. Jesus says, so what? It'll kill you. That's all they do. It's the worst it can do to you is kill you. Oh, you have to view narrow view of the world. Jesus said, "Oh, that bothers you. Oh, that would be the end of you." He says, "You shouldn't fear them. You should fear the one who can kill both body and soul. The real you." the full you, the inner you. Yeah, they're they're threats. They're real, right? Those are real threats. I don't mean to make light of them, but they're temporary. Whereas Jesus says the judgment of God lasts forever. And some of us struggle, and Jesus is trying to help us run the race. We fear all those other things, but we don't fear God. We have no fear of him. But if you have a fear of him, I can't quit. I can't quit. That fear of God actually produces incentive. Run the race. You know, if you're running, I, I think of, I don't know if you ever played that game on your phone called Temple Run. You ever played that one? Some of you have kids. No, it's this game where the guy runs out, guy or girl, you pick your whichever one you want to be, and you're running. But what you realize at the beginning of the game is there is a massive gorilla running after you and there are all these hurdles you got to jump over some you got to dodge others you got to go to the left it's a hard right a hard left you got to jump over the creek and it keeps going and you can't stop because if you stop there's the gorilla (laughs) out to get you now i don't know if that's exactly what jesus wants us to be thinking of But he does in, invoke this fear. Who, who are you going to truly fear? The one who can just kill you? Or the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell? It does get more positive. Let's, let's do that. He gives us a third reason, and this one's more positive. It's the third time Jesus is going to tell us not to fear. Verse 31, he'll he'll kind of summarize, fear not, fear not. And this is the third reason, the providential care of God. He turns our attention to sparrows, to birds sold for pennies. He likes birds, apparently. Jesus uses them all the time when we're fearful. Well, just look at the birds, and and that's supposed to calm our, our souls. Well, he says here, look at the birds, the sparrow, Maybe they're in the market at this time. And he says, you can, you can buy one of those for two, two pennies. And, 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 the, and the sense is, you're buying them for two pennies to be sacrificed in the temple. They're just buying them to die. And, he, and his point is, from the human perspective, they're, they're relatively cheap. They're insignificant. And, and, and here's a point. He's not saying birds don't matter from God's view. He's just saying they do matter, but even from human perspective, we don't think they do, and yet they don't die apart from God's consent and knowledge. That's what he's saying. You see that? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? I doubled the price. It's actually only one penny. Verse twenty-nine, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Okay, Jesus, what are you, what are you trying to? What point are you trying to make? He goes on verse 30. He moves to a different analogy, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Do any of you have your hairs numbered? Try and, you know, some of us have more of a challenge than others accounting them, but most of us don't have our hairs numbered. How are you gonna keep track? Sometimes they fall out. But God knows the numbers of hairs on your head. The most insignificant feature about you. That fact means nothing to you. I mean, who cares if you know how many hairs are on your head, right? But God knows. And what Jesus is saying, he's he's saying God knows the the most insignificant things that that you can think of. If he knows those things, and not even the bird of the sky falls to the ground apart from his will, not even a hair on your head, how much more does he care for you? How much more is he concerned with all the things going on in your life? Do you feel like he doesn't know what trial you're in? What Jesus is saying is that even if the bird even the bird doesn't even fall from the sky apart from his hand, do you think the trial that entered your life is, is, has gone unbeknownst to him and isn't part of his working in your life? That's what he's saying. He's putting things in, in perspective. He's saying you are more valuable, verse 31, than many sparrows. Oh, that's good. You're you're more valuable, so fear not. If even their death is not outside of God's hand, you don't have to fear because your death won't be outside of his hand either. You'll die when he determines you will. And so why does this bring us comfort? Well, think about the bigger picture. What has Jesus been saying? I'm, I'm sending you out as wolves or as sheep in the midst of wolves to go and, and I want you to declare in what you've heard in the dark and what I've whispered in your ear. I want you to make it known and boldly. But Jesus, they'll, they'll kill us. Not unless my daddy lets them. That's what he's saying. And guess what? The same was true for Christ on the cross. Every time, they were not able to lay their hands upon them. Why? Because his hour had not come. They sought to kill him, but they could not find him. For his hour had not come. But when his hour did come, his greatest moment of suffering was his greatest victory, and he brought you redemption. God's purposes were accomplished. And yes, we are now following Jesus, and and Jesus says that, you know what, your death will accomplish God's purposes too. Not in the same way, obviously. But it's not as if it's just out of his reach. He's telling you, I have all these things under my sovereign care. And so what you and I need to remember, we've got to have our theology hats on here, is that what God allows will ultimately serve your good, your glory, your reward, your resurrection. It will ultimately serve his glory, and it will, as we see here hinted at, it will ultimately serve their doom. This is why in the book of Revelation, how do the saints defeat the beast? Revelation 12. I've got lots of Revelation for you to read. They love not their lives even unto death. They conquer that way that's how they do it and so brothers and sisters if you and I are going to endure if we're going to persevere in the faith you and I need to heed Jesus's words listen to him they're a lamp unto your feet they're a light unto your path why because the world is darkness it's like temple run and he's the only one who's got the light because he's already blazed the trail Well, this time we're going to transition to the Lord's Supper. As we think about the cross, we're remembering God's redemptive purposes through Christ's atoning death on the cross. And we're reminded, brothers and sisters, as we're going to take in these elements, that even when we suffer, our suffering's not in vain. Just like Christ's suffering was not in vain. Listen to what Peter writes. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of this time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's what Jesus did. And as we're going to take these elements, we're going to say, I want you in me. I want your, your, your body and your blood. I want to be united to you by faith. I want to be like you. And at the end, we'll live for the rest of our time no longer for those human passions, those things that weight us down, those sins that cling so tightly. No, we'll be made more like him. So when you come to the supper this morning, you're to remember Christ who suffered in the flesh for you and that his greatest moment of suffering the world did not see what was happening but now we can see right he was purchasing you he was redeeming you and his fountain of blood was going to wash all your sins away and so he says come to me Come follow me, and I will give you rest. Supper visualizes that. It's also a sign of the new covenant. and reminds us that you and I are children of God. We're at the table. The world does not see who we are, but in here we're having dress rehearsal for the great marriage supper of the Lamb. This is just the rehearsal dinner, just so you know. And we keep doing it until we get it right, maybe. Maybe that's what it is. We're members of the new covenant. We've professed faith in Christ. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, and what does that mean? What does that mean to know Jesus? It's, it's to confess him as your Lord publicly. And particularly as you come through the waters of baptism, you, you enter into this family. And so if you've not confessed uh, Christ is your Savior through baptism and you, or you're not a good member in standing in a local church, we ask that you, that you, you let these things pass. Let's. But if you do have questions about this, at the end of the service, I'm going to be out in the lobby and I want to talk to you. I want to tell you how you can come to know Christ and you can come to the table next month. Come to the table and be a part of this family. Well, this time I want us to stand, though. I want us to have a covenant renewal, if you will. What is that faith that we've professed? What is that faith that we believed? Well, it's nicely summarized in the Apostles' Creed, and so we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed, and those are going to collect or pass out the elements. You can come forward. We're going to recite the Apostles' Creed, and let this be a renewal in your own heart of the truth that you you believed, you current believe, and that you want to continue to believe. Let's say this together.